Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, listeners. We have an amazing, amazing show for you planned today. Um, this is You've Reached the Voices of the Cannabis Wars radio show where we get together every single week and we bring you the news right from the front lines of the, the, of the war. What's, what's going on with our plant prisoners? What's going on in our prisons? How are they being treated? Um, how can we keep people out of prison? What we're, our, main, our main goal is to bring the voices that are being unheard from behind bars to the front lines for everybody to hear so we know what's, what's going on. Um, this week's uh, show, uh, first I want to tell you, we're all volunteers. We do not get paid to host this show or to product, produce this show. We are all volunteers, and we are uh, funded through CCHI, which is an initiative in California that's trying to um, get cannabis 100% legal to where even our prisoners would be able to return to their families. So check into that initiative. It's great. Um, this week's award-winning show is going to put focus on jury nullification. I mean, we're basically going to find out the ins and the outs of jury nullification, and we're going to talk to people it's worked for, and we're going to talk to Kirsten Tynan. She is like the expert about jury nullification. Kirsten is the executive director of FIJA. If you don't know what FIJA is, it stands for the Fully Informed Jury Association. So we're going to talk to her first, and after we're talk, done talking to her, she's going to lay it all out for us. So we're going to find out what, what the current jury nullification news is. We're going to find out what is it, um, for those of you that, that, that don't know, um, and how it can change, how it can end the war and how it can change our future. And she's going to talk a little bit about the history. And about between about 9.25 and 9.30, Craig Cecil will be calling in. So we'll end her interview and we'll talk to Craig. And Craig is serving his 13th year of his life sentence in right now. So he's going to be calling straight from prison. After Craig, we usually talk to George Monterano, but he's riding a horse this morning. So we're going to do um, some prison outreach. We've got a lot to talk about. Um, we've got a couple prisoners freed. Uh, we have another prisoner, Lance, was sentenced to 10 years, and I'm going to talk more about that. Um, so between 9.45 and 10, we're going to do some current news. Um, Craig, um, George is coming on later on in the show, but just not at the regular time he usually does. So then at 10 o'clock, we're going to talk to Paul Stanford. For those of you who do not know who he is, he is a, a big activist. He's much more than an activist, but I'm going to call him an activist because he's here to talk about jury nullification today. Out of Oregon... Um, he, he's the president of the Hemp and Cannabis, Cannabis Foundation and also the president of THC, THCF Medical Clinics. He's also a television producer and a host of Cannabis Common Sense and the president of Restoration and Regulation of Hemp. In 1993, he went to trial, and he was charged with manufacturing of marijuana, and he got uh, not guilty, and he's free today because of that. So he's going to talk about, about his case a little bit. And at 10.30, we're going to talk to everybody's favorite um, guest, New Jersey Weed Man. Uh, New Jersey Weed Man, um, just, he won two cases using jury nullification. I mean, he'd be in prison right now if, if jury nullification didn't work for him. We're going to find out about how it can help him save him from going to prison in his upcoming case. And then after that, we're going to talk to George Monterano. Um, George Monterano will be calling in just as soon as he gets off, his, off of his horse at about 10.30-ish. And we're also going to maybe talk to Stephanie Landa from Freedom Grow. Her son is in prison for the plant. She's visiting him this morning, so we don't know if we can make it or not. But we are going to hear from Tom Corby. He's going to bring us some news right from Northern California. 
Um, so I'm going to introduce the other host of the show. His name is Eugene Fisher. Eugene spent 25 years of a life sentence for cannabis. Um, he was freed. He went to trial. So throughout the show here and there, he's going to give us a few little things about his trial. But what he's going to talk about right now is some really, really, really good news. Um, I, I'm not even going to say what it is because I'm just going to let Eugene tell you. Then right after um, Eugene tells us the good news, we're going to talk to Kirsten Tynan from Fiji. Good morning. Good morning, Eugene. Um, how are you today? Good morning, Kristen. Good morning, listeners. Uh, I'm doing good great. Morning. I I have some wonderful news, Kristen and Mindy. Uh, a friend of mine, close friend of mine from prison, who was serving uh, multiple life sentences for marijuana for a sting operation, his name is Ronald Farah. President Obama has just given him clemency, and he's going to be released. And this follows wow. Billy, Billy Deakle just getting it before, who was another friend of mine serving a life sentence for marijuana. Um, Eugene, you know, yes. I said this a minute ago to you, but you have friends that have been in prison for over two decades, and they're getting released. Like, it seems like every a couple of weeks or so, every month or so, we find out about another one of your friends that are being freed. Kristen, all I can say is I thank God every time one of my friends gets out of prison. That's all I can tell you. I, I want to make a point, too. Um, jury nullification and our, our struggle and our fight is against a very corrupt, improper system. Jury nullification is based on the fact, and I agree a thousand percent with jury nullification, it's based on the fact that we're saying the law isn't right. And we all know these marijuana laws are stupid and incorrect and have been put on the books for pure political reasons, not to help society in any way. It's part of an overall corruption. And the court system, the way it runs, and the fact that if you fight for your case and go to trial, you're going to get a longer sentence than if you plea it plea out with a prosecutor, that's wrong and that's corrupt, and that's one of my basis, Christian, of my thinking about the whole thing. That's why. Well, I, Eugene, we've I, got, yes. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. That's why I, I celebrate. I celebrate the release of prisoners getting away. Can you imagine a, a man like this man is just being released? or like Billy Deakle, who just got released before that. They thanked, thanked Obama for doing it. But, you know, out of out of the 225,000 federal prisoners, he's releasing 300, 385, all told, you know. Yeah, People yeah. got, got the improper sentences. I thank him. I thank God that he's doing it. But it's not even enough. Right, right. In well, addition Eugene, to jury nullification, what I'd like to see, Christian, is descheduling marijuana so all marijuana prisoners can get released. Yep, yep. 
Well, we've got Kirsten Tynan on the line, and okay. let's talk about what is during nullification. You know, we've got, as we're putting yeah, prisoners so away, a lot of them are fighting tooth and nail. You know, how could we end it to where, you know, decades and decades later, the president is not having to free some of them? Um, Kirsten, how are you this morning? Good. How are you? Nice to have good. Morning. Nice to hear your voice. Um, is Eugene Fisher on the line as well? It's good to hear Eugene as well. He makes a great point that I think most people are not aware of. There is a uh, phenomenon that has been dubbed the trial tax, uh, which is what, exactly what Jean, Eugene described. Um, you get significantly more punishment if you exercise your right to trial by jury than if you take a plea bargain. And um, just last week, I turned up uh, some analysis from Human Rights Watch. And um, for fiscal year 2012, uh, their analysis of um, sentencing in the United States uh, determined that the average sentence for federal drug defendants who took a plea bargain was five years and four months, whereas the average sentence for those who went to trial and lost uh, was 16 years. Wow. And so let's, let's think about what that means for a minute. The, the, the prosecutor is not going to settle for something they think is too light a sentence. That plea bargain is what the prosecutor thinks is reasonable for the offense that was committed. Now, we may not agree with that, but we at least know what the prosecutor thinks is fair. Yeah, I just sat in a... I just sat in a federal sentencing after Lance Gore went to trial actually yesterday, no, Friday, and everything mm-hmm. hurts me right now. Mm-hmm. You know, you're so right what in sentencing? what you say, and you know what really bothers me? It really bothers me a lot, not just because I did 25 years, but because I see the judicial system as totally corrupt. That means because a prosecutor has to work they're going to give you a higher sentence. That's what mm-hmm. it, that's the only thing it can mean, right? Yeah. So really what I saw um, in the Chris Williams case, I think it was in the Helena IR, although I'm not a hundred percent sure of that, but the prosecutor in that case, in his sentencing memo was asking for more time, specifically citing Chris's right, uh, uh, demanding his right to trial by jury as saying, it showed he was not remorseful, which if you have a right that you're going to get punished every time you use, that's not a right at all. And when you are sentenced for 16 years, when the prosecutor thinks that less than six years is fair, that extra 10 years, that is all the price of exerting your right to trial by jury. It's punishment for exercising the right. It's not punishment for the offense. Can I, can I interject again? I want to make a point. Logical point. Sure. You say it. the prosecutor says they're not being remorseful. How does a prosecutor know that the person isn't being remorseful? I can't, I can't yeah. imagine because, because he or she refuses to do a plea deal and goes, exercises his, that, his or her rights to go to trial. Because of that alone, yeah, that's you're saying they're not remorseful? Yeah. How, I mean, that's a, that's absurd. That's absurd. I There's no logic to that. Mm-hmm. I agree. 
So, yeah, so to get into how this connects to jury nullification, the important thing that jurors should take away is that the way to prevent this from happening is not to convict in the first place. <laughs> and you have every yeah. right to do that. Even if they believe <laughs> the law has been broken, they can use two words and save someone's life, not guilty. Not guilty. So to explain explain that a little bit, because I think a lot of jurors are scared and don't know their rights. Mm-hmm. That's jury instructions issued to jurors that either strongly imply or outright state that they must convict if the case has been proven to them beyond a reasonable doubt. That is outright false. Um, we also saw in the Noah Kleinman case that jurors were actually bullied and intimidated by a mid-trial voir dire during which the judge individually questioned them about their thoughts on jury nullification in order to weed out anyone who was considering it. Wow. So I suggest it was also intended to kind of squash any thoughts of anyone who was thinking of doing it. The simple fact is that the judge does not have the last word in the trial. It's the jury. The jury may vote not guilty for any reason they believe is fit. They are not required to explain their reasoning, and they cannot be punished for their verdict. Now, you can be punished for other things, such as if you lie to get on the jury, you could be punished for that. If you are caught doing outside research or something like that during the trial, but you cannot be punished for voting not guilty. Moreover, what else we are seeing in jury instructions now is people are being misled into believing that the jury has to come to a verdict. That's simply not true. Uh, There's a charge called the Allen charge that if the jury comes back and says, well, we can't agree one way or the other, the judge will give this charge, also tellingly nicknamed the dynamite charge, uh, because it, it basically puts pressure on the jury to come to a verdict, suggesting to them that they're not doing their job, suggesting to them that they could be held there indefinitely, which they will not, and suggesting to them that they're somehow like wasting the court's time or taxpayer dollars or something if they don't come to an agreement, that agreement usually being a conviction. Uh, But in fact, you can't be held there indefinitely. If the jury doesn't agree on a verdict, eventually the judge will declare a mistrial and accept the hung jury. And that is far, far better for the defendant than a conviction would be. Uh, You may or may not have the resources and the opportunity to appeal, but even if you do, you begin that appeal process presumed guilty instead of innocent. Whereas if it's a hung jury, it starts over from the beginning, or it may not start over at all. Uh, we saw, I want to say, in the Tim O'Shea case in San Diego, where there was a hung jury eight to four, the prosecutor planned to refile the charges, but the judge said, no, in the interest of justice, we're not going to let you harass this person anymore. <laughs> not come to a conviction. <laughs> so if, if there's a hung jury, it may be that the charges will be dismissed or dropped by the prosecutor. It may be that the person is offered a better plea bargain that is more uh, acceptable to them, or maybe the trial starts over and they go again. Well, then they may have a better insight into the prosecutor's strategy, and their their attorneys may be better able to prepare for it and argue that. So a hung jury is A, okay, and B, far better for the defendant 
than being convicted. So whether or not the entire jury agrees to vote not guilty or whether or not you are the only lone juror left holding out, <laughs> your not guilty vote can save someone's life. Wow. So all it takes is really one person to believe that the law is unjust? That is true in all of the federal courts and 48 of the 50 states. <laughs> Appallingly, I'll just mention Oregon and Louisiana allow convictions on as little as a 10 to 2 vote with a 12-person jury. Um, and in Louisiana, that's a Jim Crow-era law that was held over from post-Civil War um, uh, lawmaking when they reformed their constitution for the specific purpose of disenfranchising black people from voting and jury rights. And in Oregon, it traces back to, I think it's the 1920s or 1930s case of Jacob Silberman uh, during a time of heightened anti-Semitism and anti-immigrant sentiment. They basically, there was a juror who um, voted not guilty on a murder charge, but voted guilty on a manslaughter charge in the trial of a Jewish defendant. And that, that raised a lot of public outcry based largely on um, uh, prejudice sentiment against certain classes of people. Uh, and so because of that, they, there, you saw an editorial in the paper, for example, that said, oh, immigrants, can't, they, they don't understand our legal system. We can't, like, let them, you know, run things. And so just months after that, they instituted um, non-unanimous verdicts. So both of those states allow non-unanimous convictions, and both, I would say, for a pretty appalling reason. Wow. Um, Kirsten, so, so, you know, I've, I've, I've learned a lot about jury nullification, especially from you over the past, you know, five years or so. Um, I have a question. What, for our listeners, I'm, I'm wondering, okay, so I've learned that jury nullification helped in slavery and that it helped in alcohol prohibition. So, like, the power that one juror has it can equal changing the whole entire country. Like, what... Where do you think jury nullification stands? Um, because there's a lot of people that don't realize that they have that power. Where do you think it stands, and how do you think it can help change our future? It definitely does show a long-term effect on our laws. When it becomes uh, too embarrassing for prosecutors when they lose over and over and over again, like we've seen in San Diego marijuana cases, they start dropping them or they have to change their strategy. Um, we one of the things that um, used to be enforced that uh, stopped being enforced long before the laws were actually repealed were anti-cohabitation laws. So uh, I think it was in, 19, in the 1990s, there was a case, Lawrence v. Texas, uh, that decriminalized same-sex relationships. But long before that, people weren't enforcing those laws in a lot of places, largely because juries were not going to convict people for their peaceful private behavior that doesn't harm anybody. Um, and you mentioned two great examples, which led to constitutional amendments uh, in the United States. Uh, part of the reason that uh, the 13th Amendment exists is because a, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 could not be enforced. Literally dozens of cases where people were prosecuted under that law and juries were either hung or acquitted them. Uh, and then in, uh, in the 1900s, during alcohol prohibition, 
that lasted only 13 years. And one of the uh, one of the books I've been reading on juries did did the numbers and found you know at least one jurisdiction has 60 percent of its alcohol violations result in not guilty verdicts. So it's just unenforceable. Um, I have well, we have a question. I just want to let you know that Craig Cecil could be calling in at about 9:25, 9:30. So. Our interview be, could be cut off. Um, he's going to be calling from Portland at around that time. Um, but I, I have a, I have another question. So, if we have, um, you're saying that basically, you know, in Southern California, a lot of a lot of cases are getting overturned and people aren't being found guilty as much as maybe in the past. Well, we have over 50 people right now that that were that are serving life sentence for cannabis, and the reason why they're serving life sentence is because they went to trial and were found guilty. And my thing is, is that um, the jurors didn't realize that some of these people were, or the jurors didn't know at all that they were facing life sentences. I mean, they're still in prison after decades because of, you know, jurors didn't know their rights or know that what they were facing. I'm wondering for our listeners, what, why don't the jurors know, why don't they know the whole story and how much time they're facing and the whole entire scenario when they're called a jury duty? Yeah is actually a strategy of prosecutors and I would suggest also of judges to potential effects of their decision. Can you imagine any other thing in life we do where people tell us, go ahead, take this action without considering the consequences? Does anyone tell us we should go to the bar, you know, driving our own car and get drunk and then don't worry about driving home? Nobody does that because it's irresponsible to take those kind of life you know, life-changing decisions without considering the consequences. But when you're a juror, you will be instructed that you are not supposed to take the sentence into account. Please disregard that. That is absolute, absolutely appalling. It is unconscionable. And to, to be handling, you know, the, 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 someone else's life is in the palm of your hand and not consider the consequences of the action you're about to take against them, I cannot think of anything more insane. That's just appalling. So jurors, please disregard that. Please keep in mind that if you don't know what the penalty is, it could be far harsher than anything that you think is reasonable. Uh, it, is, it is so important for jurors to consider this, and prosecutors know that, that we've actually seen a case earlier this year where a mistrial was declared because the defense attorney in opening arguments mentioned that the defendant was accused of a felony. Can you imagine that the jury would be tainted by knowing that the, that the defendant is accused of a felony? Well, the reason they didn't want the jury to know that is because when you're accused of a felony, people know it means you're going to jail and the, the penalty is very, very serious. Oh. Exactly. I mean, it's just appalling. It is absolutely appalling. I, I Don't get me started. She's hitting completely correctly on all things. Um, 
in our trial, uh, it was a hung jury uh, three times. And with Allen charges, they kept sending it back. And this is how the courts work. We have the most corrupt uh, judicial system in the world. I'll say that point blank. What the judge uh, did in our case, it was in the summertime in southern Illinois. It was very hot. One of the jurors uh, was a pregnant lady, and they turned off the air conditioner. I said, you better better come to a decision because we're not giving well, you any air conditioning. And, and that was, that's part of what happens. But I think what, what really rang a bell in your discussion is the fact that uh, what which precedes which. Uh, a jury start to find they don't really believe in the law, or the fact is that the majority of people now let's let's go to marijuana specifically. The majority of Americans don't believe it should be illegal, so they believe that that would seem logically to mean the majority of Americans don't believe that you should be charged that it's a crime. You should be charged as a crime. Therefore, that's where jury nullification should come in as to the way around that, you know, and which precedes which. I don't know, but it's important. It's important to get the message out and to have, have people, citizens, begin to, to focus on things like you're saying. I agree 100%. Well, I definitely going to look you up after the show, Eugene, because I definitely want to chat more about your trial. <laughs> It was the worst period of, of my life. It's the worst period of anyone's life you can imagine. And ours went on for a year. And um, it's just, it, it, uh, I, I finally got out of jail because I proved the corruption of the U.S. government. And rather than face a civil trial on the corruption charges, they released me. So I'm a strong believer in, well, in how screw, screwed up our our system is. You know, uh, the point you make is so right about the fact that you can be given a, a harsher sentence because you exercise your right to go to trial, and because you're believed that it's believed that you're not uh, you're not re- repentive of your actions, that you don't show remorse. It's absurd. It's totally absurd. It makes no uh, sense Kirsten, in the world. Kirsten, there's a state that um, don't know. My, my thing is, why don't they tell you about your jury rights when you're called for jury duty or when you're given your voters or when you sign up for to vote? If you can vote for these laws, you can be you can be called to jury duty um, in order to have to nullify them or to convict on them. So how come our jurors aren't told? And I believe there is a state that they are. Um, could you tell us um, more about this? Yeah, actually, New Hampshire is not very consistent. Um, New Hampshire has a law that has been overturned by their Supreme Court that said the defense was allowed to argue jury nullification to the jury. But other than that, you're basically not told because it would make it harder to convict people. That's simply the bottom line. How are we going to keep the courts full? 
are we going to keep the prisons full of people getting paid like 12 cents an hour for labor that, you know, is going to right. corporations benefit? How right. is that all going to happen? How are, how is the DEA going to stay in business and keep getting taxpayer <laughs> dollars if right. people are not going to convict? So basically it all came down to an 1895 Supreme Court ruling, uh, which acknowledged that jurors do have the right of nullification, but led many judges to believe that they form jurors. And now in more recent years, we're seeing crackdowns on um, any sort of uh, discussion that could lead people in that in that uh, in that direction in court, you'll see prosecutors file motions ahead of time to preclude any discussion, not only of jury nullification, but anything that they think might lead in that direction. So basically, jurors are not going to get the full story inside the courthouse. The only way they're going to learn of their rights is if they learn it before they go to court, and that is why FIJA exists. <laughs> So, Kirsten, I, I've noticed, like, jury nullification is, like, a cuss word, and it's a really bad word in, in, in the courtrooms. Like, um, so what FIJA does is they educate, and maybe you could tell us more about that while we wait for Craig to call in. Um, I've, I know I've been out there with you personally edu- doing education and outreach in front of the courthouses. So maybe you can let our, our listeners know um, how important it is to get the word out and how they can visit your website and find out more about jury, jury outreach, jury, um, jury Absolutely. Our, our website is just our initials, F-I-J-A dot O-R-G. You can also find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash national. There's another feature that we didn't start and have no control over and that doesn't post anything. But I am posting several times a day at this point, so facebook.com slash national is the one you want to look for. <laughs> okay. um, we also have a lot of uh, public outreach programs. People will do uh, tables at fairs and gun shows, hemp fests, peace fairs, things like that. We have people who do sidewalk outreach outside of courthouses or standing with signs on overpasses and things like that. We are and I'm, very happy <laughs> to do that because it's fun and I've done it before and you get together and you teach people. People have no idea that they have the power to not convict. They think, you know, they're given lunch. They're giving them all kinds of bribes, all kinds of stuff to reach that, that conviction. Um, you guys, we've got Craig calling in right now. So I'm going to answer that. Um, Kirsten and Eugene, um, can you talk for a second while I answer this? And I love you, Kirsten, and thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Kirsten, I love your focus. Yeah, I love to talk I love your focus. And again, I, the only difference we might have is I see our system as totally corrupt. I see our system as totally wrong. It isn't. There isn't any means of of correcting it other than revenge. All right. Good morning, Craig. We were just talking to Kirsten Tynan from the Fully Informed Jury Association because our topic today is jury nullification. And how are you this week? Oh, doing well, doing well. As you know, uh, two marijuana offenders got good news from the president on Friday. Two of them? Two of them. <laughs> one, one, one of them. Is really them one of them. 
One of them, Craig, is a very close friend of mine who we were just getting ready to do something with. He served over 20-some years for marijuana charges for a sting operation. Ron Ferrer is his name. Wow, but at least he did get, <laughs> he did get some love from the from the White House. <laughs> now, yeah, he, 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 thanks, he, he thanks God for, the, for what occurred, and it's the second one recently... Uh, Billy Beagle's the other one who got out. Now we got to get you out. <laughs> well, thank um, you. Who is the other one, uh, Craig? Are you talking about Weldon? Ah, I don't have the list in front of me, but if I remember right, one was from Florida and one was from Texas. Okay, because there was the, two the prisoners. Uh, I'll is, tell you what the happened. Is, the guy from Florida is Ron, Ron Farah, yes. Okay, so the one from Florida is Ron, and then um, there was one that was released yesterday. He was working on his 13th year of his life sentence, and that was Weldon, and Weldon was not commuted by the president. Weldon was released through the court system. So um, I so maybe there was three. If there was two that was done by the president, I don't know. But one, one was Weldon, who was released by the court, and then the other one was Ron, which was Eugene's friend. Um, now, Craig, this week also, you'll get my message I sent out to CoreLinks today. Lance Glore um, was sentenced to 10 years, so you might see him, him in prison soon. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. No, no, that was more, another plant prisoner. Um, they released two, but they incarcerated one. Oh, no. Yeah. I hate to hear that part. Yeah. I hate to hear and that's the man from Washington? Yes, yeah. So why they freaked two, they took in one. So I don't know. Craig, yeah. yeah, I have a question for you. Uh, concerning okay. jury nullification and the whole system. Your case is, is part of what I say is part of the, the corruption of our system. They enticed you to take a guilty plea that that put you away for a life sentence. Can you explain that to the audience? Oh, well, they actually threatened me with several different things. The The main thing is they would not allow me to uh, have my own lawyer. So I was not allowed to put up uh, my defense at trial, which was some recordings made by the government. And uh, then the, the lawyer that they required me to use um, also agreed with the government to destroy a lot of that evidence. So what they did is they threatened me with uh, uh, different things upon my family and things of that nature. And what I did is I pleaded guilty basically just to stop a bunch of threats that were going on in the courtroom. And then later that day, filed a, a bunch of things to reverse the plea and to uh, sanction them for what they had done with, uh, with destroying the evidence in my case and with threatening me and my family. And uh, that, that action led to this college from a federal prison. very serious uh, sanctions because they decided me going after the uh, prosecutor and this man that was basically posing as my lawyer that was forced on me by the court, that me going after them, they called obstruction of justice. And that became a, a significant uh, 
enhancement to my sentence. My co-defendants uh, were all sentenced to around 70 or 80 months. A couple of them with prior convictions got sentences of 130 and 140 months. They were home years and years ago. But because I, I fought with their system, that's where my enhancements came from. So you were trying to go to trial, but they, they ruined it for you, basically. Yes, what they decided in that courtroom is because my trial was based on what they said would be the testimony of, of somebody who wasn't even ever charged with a crime. Um, they said that, you know, if I was allowed my own attorney, if I was allowed to communicate with people outside the jail and all that, that I might put this witness in danger. So therefore, I was never allowed to organize, you know, uh, defense or have a lawyer. And that's what I've been fighting ever since in my case. And unfortunately, in the court they prosecuted me in, these kind of procedures are, are typical. I mean, they, and that's why you notice out of the latest batch of 42 commutations, almost half of them uh, originate out of what's called the 11th Circuit. And that's the area of Georgia, Florida, and Alabama. They, they kind of have a different set of rules down there in the southeast. Uh-huh. Um, so what do you think about the commutations and, you know, the fact that we've gathered hundreds and hundreds of letters just for you and the president is overlooking those letters um, and only pardoned two plant or one plant prisoner. I don't know about the other one. I think the other one was through the courts. I think you're talking about Weldon and he wasn't commuted. But if I hope there, there was two, but out of 45, why do you think he's overlooking our lifers? Um, and not letting our our marijuana uh, or our cannabis prisoners out. It, it's, what I think, it's heartbreaking. What I think fighting for become, you. Like, well, what has become, uh, I believe, too big of a part of our of the commutation process is uh, applications for commutation are processed by the Department of Justice. They're basically processed and are required to be signed. If they recommend a commutation, they must be signed by the Attorney General, who's the lead prosecutor in the United States. So therefore, if the prosecutor does not think that your sentence should be commuted, you're dead in the water. Wow. What's happened in that process is that people that have either uh, mandatory minimum sentences of life or very excessive Uh, like three strikes life sentences, those people in general are the people being commuted because the prosecutor is willing to sign those because he can, well, she can say that, uh, that the reason this person got this excessive sentence is due to a glitch in the law, the three strikes law, rather than an overzealous prosecutor. So therefore you're saying people that, uh, like myself, who are really the victim of an overzealous prosecutor and a kind of a warp system in the court, we're getting overlooked because the prosecutor's not willing to stand up and sign it and say, here, it was the prosecutor at fault. So that's why you're seeing a disparity. If you look down the list of people that were commuted on Friday, virtually all of them have 240-month sentences. They have life sentences. Both of those are based on... uh, uh, either one or two prior convictions. Those are mandatory minimums in those cases. 
So the prosecutor had no choice over what sentence the person really got. So they, they're, you know, plenty happy to say, you know, these people should be commuted. But people like me, who as a first-time offender didn't even have a mandatory minimum under... This call is from a federal prison. They call it the safety valve for first-time offenders. But instead, a uh, prosecutor pursued, for instance, those uh, uh, obstruction of justice enhancements and things of those nature... They're not willing to sign and say that, well, he was all wrong and the sentence should be reversed. So that's where we kind of have a disparity now in uh, why these things are getting granted and why they're not, because they're required to be, prosecu- or they're required to be uh, processed by the prosecutor, and they must be signed by the prosecutor. I think they should be processed by the White House and somebody that answers directly to the White House rather than by the prosecutor yeah. the White House charges with prosecuting people. Yeah. Yeah. It seems, it seems, it seems like, uh, but if it, if it, the president, so basically you're saying that the president don't even get to look at all of the applicants. He only gets to look at the ones they put for him to. That's true. Um, the pardon attorney, who of course, you know, works for the Justice Department for the uh, Attorney General. In January, it was uh, Deborah left and she quit. And the reason she put in a resignation letter is that she had recommended many uh, commutations. And when they, when they went from her to Suzanne Yates, who is the Deputy Attorney General or Deputy U.S. Proper Prosecutor in the United States, that Suzanne Yates had denied many of them. So they never got to the president as, you know, recommendations for commutation. And uh, the partner attorney was so beside herself over that, she quit. <laughs> wow. Well, I wonder how many people they're pardoning that actually went to trial. Uh, many of them. You, you see, many of the people that were in this last list said, to 360 months. Okay. As a rule, that that's the bottom of the guideline for somebody who's considered a career offender, meaning they have two or more prior convictions, and didn't get the uh, reduction that somebody gets if they plead guilty instead of going to trial. It's what they call the acceptance of responsibility reduction. And uh, so if they have a sentence of 360 months... Most times, it's because uh, they went to trial. They could not receive the three-point reduction for accepting responsibility by pleading guilty, and therefore their sentence is 360 months. If they do do accept responsibility, their sentence is generally 262 months. You see many of those were granted last time, but not this time. Okay. Okay. So how how are you this week? What's what's going on on Christmas? Well, the prison's been quiet, so that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> there hasn't been any drama. The weather's been good. You know, there's there's nothing exceptional at all at the prison. We only had to eat uh, bologna for two meals. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so that's a good way. <laughs> But uh, as far as jury nullification, 
I wish there was uh, uh, more traction for that as it relates to marijuana charges. Most federal courts nowadays don't allow that in a federal court. Right. uh, For the instruction, for the judge to instruct the jury that, hey, this is a marijuana offense. And uh, our Constitution says the jury decides if somebody's guilty or not. So if you don't think somebody should be convicted of this marijuana offense and face life in prison, that you have the power to find them not guilty. And unfortunately, they won't give that instruction in virtually all federal courts. And I, I think they, the jury should be presented that option. And well, we've got uh, Mindy. She is our executive producer of the show. And she just sent me a message and said there was another plant prisoner. So basically yesterday there were three prisoners, plant prisoners released. Um, the one that we, that was, the other one that was granted clemency by President Obama, his name was Jesus Ruiz from Kendale, Texas. His offense was his offense was conspiracy to distribute marijuana in the Western District of New York, conspiracy to possess with the intent to distribute marijuana, and conspiracy to export marijuana in the uh, Western District of New York. His sentence was 92 months, eight years, uh, supervised release, and sentence, second sentence was 360 months, imprisoned, eight years, supervised release. Um, and the commutation was granted by the president. So yeah, there was two. Yes, and plus Weldon, who and Weldon, should received, he should have received, received uh, relief many years ago, but I'm certainly happy to find that there is some people willing to do what's right, both in the court and in the prosecutor's office in his case. And we can only hope that that's, uh, <laughs> that's an event that starts spreading more and more rapidly, that you know prosecutors and judges that sentences are wrong and they, they set out to fix them like they did for him. Right. But you heard, you heard the second beep, and I thank you so much for all those letters, and because uh, they they will make such a difference to make my application in the pardon attorney's office stand out, even if it's before the prosecutor, it will definitely stand out. <laughs> the other eleven thousand that are there. <laughs> We're working on Craig. <laughs> you you might be the one. All right, you guys. That was Craig Cecil serving his 13th year of his life sentence for cannabis. You got his take on jury nullification. Um, usually right now we're joined with George Monterano, and he does his 15-minute segment. He's not going to be calling in today till about 10.30-ish. Um, but, so what we're going to do is Mindy and I are going to do a little bit of, um, uh, and, and Eugene as well, of prison outreach. We've got some news going on. I want to talk about Lance's sentencing real quick. Um, let me just check to see if I have any of my Washington people on the line here, and I don't. So I'm going to talk about it by myself. I'm going to unmute Mindy for the next 15, 12 minutes while we wait for Paul Stanford to call in. He's calling in at about 10 o'clock. That's an amazing man you guys don't want to miss. Right after Paul, we've also got New Jersey Weed Man at 920, and he's amazing as well. So you guys just don't want to miss the rest of the show. Hang in there. Um, we're going to get a update about Northern California. We'll hopefully talk to Stephanie Landa as well. Um, so we've got quite a bit going on. First things first, um, we've got some messages to read from prisoners regarding their thoughts of jury nullification. Some of them went to trial. Um, but first I want to talk about Lance. Lance Glore, um, his sentencing was a typical sentencing. It was wrong. It was nasty. It was corrupt. It had nothing to do with you know what was really going on. All it has to do is trying to get him in prison for the next 10 years. 
um, what's he going to do for the next 10 years? Well, he's going to save um, the government a lot of money by working almost for free for them. He's, he's basically turned into a slave. Um, he's going to have to work for about 12 cents an hour, uh, fight for his rights back there. I mean, prison's nasty. We, we've been through that. What happened at sentencing is basically they took – okay, so for during his trial, he went to trial. He's, he's one of the rare people that go to trial. Only 2% go to trial because they have a 98% conviction rate, uh, 97%. Or they have a not yet yeah, 98% conviction rate. 97% of people um, take plead out, plead out. So 1% goes to trial. Lance was the 1%. Lance was 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 the 1%. So what we've got is he had four charges. He had a gun charge. He had two um, two cannabis charges, and he had a conspiracy to money laundry launder money charge. He was found not guilty on the gun charge. He was never even in possession of the gun. Okay. Um, so he's found not guilty of that. He's also found not guilty in the money laundering. So as sentencing sits, he's facing 10 years for two cannabis charges. However, in his trial, they had snitches, ex-friends that turned into snitches in order not to go to jail, ex-girlfriends. Okay, who leaves their exes on a good basis? I don't know. Called to his trial to talk crap about him. Judge saw all of it. So at sentencing, the judge mentioned all of that, that, you know, you did this, and you had a gun, and it had nothing to do with cannabis. It all had to do with he said, she said by snitches and a gun that he wasn't even convicted of. They found him not guilty, but yet it was used against him like crazy at sentencing. So they came up with their PSI report. It's this bogus, stupid, goddamn thing that they fucking say about people. Excuse my language. And he had like 43 points against him which my dad had 47 points against him. They made my dad seem like a gang member. Same thing they did to Lance, same thing they did to Chris, same thing they do with all of our prisoners. So like I said, it was a typical sentencing. It, it, I've noticed that it goes a certain way. It's sort of a staged play out of you're bad. The judge even called him names. He called him a flim-flam man. Okay, I've watched the judges call other people's name, people names in order to pass down a, a, a sentence that's unjust. Anyhow, he got 10 years. Um, and nothing had, none, of, none of the talk of the sentencing had to do with the nonviolent crime that he, commit, that he committed, which was cannabis. It all had to do with he said, she said, landed him 10 years. So that's what happened at Lance's sentencing. I'm really hurt about it. I'm really upset about it. We cried. His mom cried. We had other, other federal defendants. My mom was there. Debbie and Josh were there who was just sentenced in a federal courtroom. Um, people... Uh, Jeff Eichen was there doing documentary for lifers. There's just, there's a lot of family and support for Lance. And it was one of the worst days ever. Yeah. It made it better because I found out, you know, that a couple people were released, but it's just, it's just really hard in a state that we call it legal to actually witness that go down. So that's the news about Lance Galore. Um, please check out Miggy's uh, article that he already wrote about it. It's at toke signals, toke Lance Gore, it's on my Facebook wall. It will tell you a lot more of the details of what happened yesterday and just what an outrage it is. Or we sit here and fight and fight and fight what we're fighting for. Um, the, the federal government is still defeating the purpose in prosecuting. Regardless of Section 538, the Congress, and that was another thing about the sentencing, is that Lance's attorney wanted him released pending the appeals of uh, the, the Kettle Falls Five and a couple other ones that have taken it to the Ninth Circuit District Court of Appeals. And if they win their appeal, 
it would might be able to save lamps, considering the case precedent would allow lamps to be free, basically. So his attorney wanted him free until those those appeals are worked out, but the judge wasn't hearing it. He did not care about about what Congress passed, Section 538. They've never cared about um, the laws that Congress passed throughout Lance's whole trial. Just, they still never proved that he 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 um, violated the state law. So here we go. Um, this was a this was a um, a reaction. Uh, Probably the last case since the 2011 raids, which you know incarcerated so many people. 2011 raids ruined medical cannabis in so many different states. And Lance, this is a this is the outcome of of that. Um, I, I I'm hurting for Lance and his whole family. But um, Kristen, I got a little rant it. on this. Go 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 for it, it Mindy. <laughs> My rant about this is I am so tired of people that are in. <laughs> Who's, who smoke marijuana, use cannabis, Medicaid, recreation, whatever, who say, well, how many plants did he have? I don't yeah. give a shit how many plants he had. <laughs> how many plants does that dispensary up the street have? How much weed have they oh. sold in just the last couple hours? It, it right. doesn't matter how many plants he had. I don't know why we try to make excuses for our government. Well, it's okay that they kidnapped this man from his life because he grew one too many plants above what I think is acceptable. That's the most ridiculous concept I have ever heard. And I, I, I kind of understand from people who, who are against marijuana in the first place that might say that, but most of the people that ask me that question are people that, probably are growing in their garage right now. Weldon Angelos only had like three minor cannabis convictions that landed him life. Check this out. I'm looking at um, uh, families against uh, mandatory minimum sentences. They got a page on Weldon. Sam, we love got, Sam. We love Sam. Yeah, they got, he, he had 55 years in in prison was his sentence, which would have been life for him. For a couple pounds, they an uh, uh, undercover cop purchased a half a pound from him twice, and then they raided him, and he got um, indicted on 20 charges. He was uh, with a minimum sentence of 105 years. The jury convicted this man of 13 counts of possession of firearm, furtherance of a drug trafficking crime, um, money laundering. Um, all this kind of stuff. And even the judge said, judge, I'm going to go ahead and say his name. He's such a nice judge. I might as well say him. Judge Paul G said that it was irrational. It was ridiculous. He felt that it was unjust, cruel, and um, compared it to child rapists, airplane hijackers, things like that. You know, we've heard Craig Cecil talk about that all the time. So, um there's some great stories about Weldon right now that are out there in um, the news and um, some videos of him being reunited with his family. It, oh, he was in way God. too long. And, and don't think that just, you know, if you have friends in high places, that's going to save you. This guy, he produced songs with Snoop Dogg. He was an up-and-coming rap uh, artist. Wow. He was, he was, um, 
well respected and and um they like and to take national recognition. They like to take entertainers. They took Luke. Luke was a rapper too, and a few of our other uh, entertainers. They they well, really Randy like entertainers. Lanier. My mom watched yeah. Randy Lanier race on TV. I you remember know, I heard that she took me last week. Yeah. Well, what was that? You guys, I'm going to read a couple of messages that I sent to the prisoners and ask them what jury nullification meant to them. And I got a message back from Leroy Earl Lavelle. He said, I see jury nullification should be used based on the fact that marijuana is legal in some states and don't pose a health risk and only benefit the person that uses it. America needs to change the way, the way they policy, and you need to talk about the fact that the DEA is going to make a recommendation on with schedule to classify marijuana. I believe they should make an announcement on June 20th. Check into that and send me a list of all the people they plan on all plans on putting it on the ballot in November. Thank you. Okay, so I got Leroy has a job for me to do. I got to work on that. Eddie said this. Eddie, um, this is a message from Eddie. I spent the whole morning giving out pamphlets of jury nullification. I guess this is the day of his trial. He said, I spent the whole morning. Uh, giving out pamphlets about jury nullification outside the courthouse for a dear friend of mine um, and Linda Sentis. Funny, Ben was acquitted. Oh, this is about Ben. After that, I know the info. I know the info um, did it. Oh, he did. Okay, he saved somebody by passing out pamphlets at his, at his trial, his friend Ben. I, on the other hand, went home and was raided the very next day and ended up here in federal prison. The two best things that can happen to a defendant are someone preaching jury nullification, second in the courtroom full of supporters. Hope each of you um, will do all you can to see to it. Anyone you can help has the support they need to win this. To win this. Seemingly never end the battle against evil. Love, respect, Eddie. Um, this uh, happened in February of 2005. Okay, then Lance says, great topic for the show, my friend. I hope you're doing okay. I'm getting anxious for my court Friday. I hope the judge gives me a state. Oh, I'm reading this. This is the, 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 a message I got from Lance just before sentencing, and I just thought it was really compelling. This has nothing to do with jury nullification, but I just want everybody to hear the, somebody's thoughts before sentencing. Um, he says, I'm getting anxious for court, court date Friday. I hope the judge gives me a stay on my sentence and doesn't send me off to prison. We are filing my appeal right after the court hearing, no matter what the verdict is. Prosecutors asking for 10 years. I have a mandatory minimum of five years, and my lawyer is asking for one, and the judge to go against the mandatory minimum and stay. Suspend my sentence and release me on court on Friday. I'm optimistic we will make history Friday with the judge's decision, but scared at the same time as this is my life I risk for what I am so passionate about and believe in, and that's MJ. Thanks again for your help. I couldn't have done this without you by my side. Only 35 more hours until I find the fate of my future. Love you, my friend and fellow fighter. One dream, one team, Lance Core. All right, that hurt because he got 10 years. He didn't get free like he wanted to. Okay, next um, I'm going to do um, Luke's message, and then we're going to see if Paul is on the line after that. Um, Luke said, he Luke, is. Luke is a plant person. He is. Okay, let me read Luke's message, and we'll find out about uh, – we're going to talk to um, – Paul Stanford. Now, Luke Scamarzo and his partner Ricardo Ruiz Montes, who I shared a, I shared a, a, 
article on my Facebook wall a couple of days ago. Everybody, please go read it. It's really great. Well, they were caregivers down in California, and during the time, um, I believe in 2008, the, the, the California, the feds in California went crazy. Arreda, Luke, and Ricardo. Luke and Ricardo went to trial. They fought. They fought tooth and nail, and the jurors didn't know their jury rights. Now, now Luke was sentenced to 22 years. His uh, partner Ricardo was sentenced to 20 years. They're big advocates for a plant behind bars, and this is what Luke writes about jury nullification. He says we have to make sure potential jurors are knowledgeable about jury nullifications or origins in our country's founding documents. If someone, as a juror, does not agree with the charge, how the case was presented by the prosecution, or the potential penalty to be imposed, which are commonly 20, 30, and 50-year prison terms for low-level drug offenses, then you can and must vote your conscience. This encourages act. This courageous act is within the law, and it's your right as a citizen. All right, that is Luke Scarlato's um, take on jury nullification. Next, we're going to talk to Paul Stanford. Okay, I'm going to tell you guys who Paul Stanford is before we we have him come on here. He's an amazing man. Um, he is the president at Hemp and Cannabis Foundation, the president at THCF Medical Clinics. He's a television producer and the host of Cannabis Common Sense and the president of Restoration and Regulation of Hemp. Okay, Paul was charged with manufacturing of uh, marijuana in 1993. Um, he was found not guilty, and today he's a free man. And this is all the things he's, do- he's done in all these years. Um, so we're going to talk to talk to him and talk to him about um, his trial and um, about about what happened and how he's free and Everything else. Good morning, uh, Paul Stanford. How are you? I'm doing very well. How are you, Kristen? Good, good. Uh, we're here um, with Eugene Fisher, who served 25 years of a life sentence, who went to trial also uh, back 25 years ago. Um, he's the other host of the show, so I just want to introduce you two together so you guys know each other. Well, nice to virtually meet you here. <laughs> Eugene, are you still there? Oh, it says Eugene Collar has dropped. Yeah, his his has dropped, but he'll be joining joining back with us in a second. Um, so Paul, let's um, let's talk. You there? Yes. Okay, okay, okay. I think you dropped off for a second. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, um, you know the whole thing revolves around uh, Christian and Mindy re- revolves around how corrupt our system is. You know, you take a case like Craig's. You all heard him today. We've heard him before. He was enticed into a situation, and then the plea resulted in a life sentence without parole. He didn't know what was happening. He wasn't even given a, a, loud, a, a, a lawyer of his own choice. The system is totally okay. gone wrong. It's wrong. It's gone bonkers. <laughs> um, Paul, how much time were you facing? Uh, ten years. Uh, I was offered a five-year mandatory minimum sentence, and because I didn't take it, it would have been enhanced to ten years. But I agree, the system is uh, out of control. It's inherently corrupt, and drug prohibition is corrupt and it's very base, but it leads to further corruption. 
So uh, I think there are a few solutions, but they're not simple ones. Um, you know, we've got to change our whole political system. That's a big job. There's not much. Yeah, it's a big to do job. It. We got to take back our government. We got yeah, to run. That, that's, that's. I think the representative lesson. government is inherently corrupt. Electing people uh, to represent us is inherently corrupt, and uh, inevitably, some, if not most of them. And so, we need to do away with Congress. We need to do away with mayors and governors and uh, uh, presidents. We don't need those guys anymore. You know, we really don't. I agree. And electing them to represent us is inherently corrupt. We've got to, I think, expand individual rights so that people have more rights than they do currently. It's certainly a lot more than artificial individuals like corporations and governments do. And once we've expanded individual rights, we need to uh, take charge and uh, create the laws that really matter and erase the ones that don't. Now, that's a huge job, but there's a very limited that's time to do it with the uh, the convergence that's going on of genetic technology where we can alter our DNA, uh, nanotechnology, molecular-sized machines that can alter our DNA and anything else at the molecular level, and artificial intelligence. Over the next 30 years, those three sciences are going to converge. And if those new artificial individuals don't have less rights than we natural individuals do, then the future of... Uh, uh, free thought and liberty are, are very sad indeed. But it's a huge job, and that's beyond the scope of, I guess, what we could talk about here today with your nullification. Well, you just said you. What you just said really hit into my into my heart and my soul. Like, wow! It, it you know, I never really looked at. I look at the big picture, but I haven't looked at the picture in that big of a realm before. That's that's something that I want to. How do we restore our rights before um, like that all happens? Um, like you said, it's yeah, an it's emergency. Inevitable. In the next 30 years, those three technologies, artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, and genetic technology are going to converge. And if we don't give people, natural individuals, uh, more rights than artificial individuals have, and, you know, with the Citizens United ruling by our U.S. Supreme Court, the Supreme Court says, Corporations have more rights than people do. And, well, mm-hmm. that means artificial intelligence has more rights than people do. And so, right. uh, you know, it's just the next logical extension. And in 30 years, artificial intelligence will be more intelligent than humans and start improving itself. Beyond that, uh, you know, it's impossible for us to even fathom what might happen. Well, so we could end up... Uh think kind of like the dinosaurs possibly um and a whole new a whole new generation of humans come come through so let's talk Our about lifestyle. it right um let's right right let's, let's, we are yeah, right. huh. let's let's talk about a right um let's talk about well when you're in jail you are right. livestock you know you're in you're the yes. control of other people and uh 
that's the very nature of that system. And they've taken things that aren't really crimes, like uh, using marijuana, and made them illegal where they could put us in jail for things that really don't harm others. So uh, those are wrong. And, but fortunately, going back to the implementation of the jury system, the Peter Zinger case for uh, free press here in the United States before the American Revolution uh, in Pennsylvania, Peter Zinger's case uh, established jury nullification as one of the inherent rights of uh, of citizens. Do you um, so, well? Let's talk. Let's talk. Let's talk about what happened to you in 1993. I have a question though. Do you do you think um, jury nullification can help us when it comes to our future regarding um, basically us all not being human anymore? Do you think that that could help us? I mean, it helped um, you in '93. You know, as long as we it help, help society from. I think it's it's a critical component for a state out of control. You know, for a state that uh, uh, controls the media through what some people call the deep state uh, organizations, the national security state, the CIA, decide what we're going to do, and the whole representative government are just under their control. So we have these huge institutions, and our final, one of our final. protection is the jury system and so you know my case was back in I, I started actually as a marijuana activist I uh, at a very early age uh, saw that marijuana prohibition was wrong and so I first went to a pro-marijuana protest at the White House in 1978 the uh, Yippie organized Washington D.C. smoke gift which was out it in the media. And I went to that, and I met a number of people there. But I didn't really get active until a few years later, about 1981, and became uh, involved with Normal. And I moved to Oregon in 1984 to help the Oregon Marijuana Initiative. A uh, group of forward-looking people were using the initiative process to uh, overturn marijuana prohibition. So I got involved in that and uh, started uh, in fact another guy who a lot of people have heard of, Jack Herr moved here to Portland uh, in the same year I did in 1984 to help also the Oregon Marijuana Initiative and two other folks out there like Doug McVeigh moved here to help John Sajo and a lot of other folks who were doing this initiative to legalize marijuana in Oregon and so in doing that I uh, uh, found a lot of folks were growing marijuana, and there was actually a period here in town in Portland, Oregon, where no one was arrested for growing marijuana. A new police chief came to town, and the first female police chief of a major city in America, her name was Penny Harrington, and uh, her husband was later busted for cocaine sales or something involved with a cocaine dealer. And there weren't any marijuana arrests. So we grew marijuana and funded putting marijuana legalization on the ballot using money that, uh, you know, we, we 
hadn't raised the money except by selling cannabis. Well, the whole thing. Oh, that's cool. Against it. Huh? That's, I said that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, so that was, you know, 1984, 85. Once we made the ballot, came on the radar of uh, the Reagan administration, and the first drug czar was one of the people in charge of the deep state, you know, the national security state, former CIA director and vice president at the time, George H.W. Bush, or George Bush Sr. And he came to Oregon and toured the state for 13 days to build up opposition to our initiative uh, a long time in advance uh, before the election. And I was arrested in July of 1986, and it was used against the initiative at the time. In the end, during the election of uh, 1986, we ended up only getting 26% of the vote. But that was a state charge. I was put on probation, and uh, that ended uh, in 1990. But in 1991... On October 2nd, my door was kicked in, and I was charged wow. uh, eventually uh, for federally manufacturing marijuana and uh, over 100 plants. And because I had the previous uh, uh, conviction, and I never pled guilty in that, I, I uh, filed constitutional challenges to the marijuana laws, only to have the courts rule. You know, it's a legislative issue that the courts are going to decide. So uh, when I came when it came to this new charge, you know the door was kicked in in April of uh, of ninety uh, one, but the prosecution in federal court didn't actually begin until May of ninety three. And so they offered me a five year mandatory minimum plea bargain, and I said I'd get ten years if I went to trial. So I went to trial. And basically, uh, we didn't call any witnesses at all. I had a court-appointed attorney. This was part of a national sting operation on grow shops that had been launched in 1989 called Operation Green Merchant, where the DEA targeted all of the advertisers in High Times Magazine that were selling grow equipment and came in and raided a uh, hundred different stores selling grow equipment all around the country, one of which I had worked at. And so uh, I wrote the whole story out in detail. If somebody wants to read it in more detail than I could tell it at this moment, they can go look up uh, how FIJA, our F-I-J-A, you know, the Fully uh, Informed Jurors Act, or how that saved my life, yep. how FIJA saved my life. It's the whole story. Exactly yep, we, just had, we, just had a we just had a representative from Fiji on the on our um, on our show earlier. I saw that, and they've reprinted that story yeah. in their uh, their newsletter. I wrote it up in in 1994, and I could add to it quite significantly now because I actually met someone who was on the jury who told me what happened in the jury room. But uh, oh wow, what happened? Uh, what was that? Well, anyway, I met someone on the jury, and so I could expand it, but the story's out there from 94. And P just reprinted it in their newsletter a number of times. But basically, we didn't call any witnesses. We oh. cross-examined their witnesses. And so uh, at one point, one of the people who had been arrested was asked, 
by my attorney, Paul Peterson, who I'll be praising for the rest of my life, and did in that article. He asked this uh, fellow, uh, why are you testifying against Mr. Stanford? And see, he said, because I don't want to do 10 years in federal prison. They told me if I didn't testify against Mr. Stanford, I would get 10 years in federal prison. So the jury got to see how long a period of time I was facing. Now, he would have only got five years under the mandatory minimum law because he didn't have any priors. But I was actually looking at 10 years. So, but that informed the jury of the length of the sentence. The next thing that was really critical uh, that I'll focus on is that they introduced my library. At the time, I had about 40 books on marijuana. Now I have about 500. But at the time, <laughs> I had about 40, and about half of them, I collect them, and I collect a number of other campus things. But um, at the time, I had 40, and about half of them were autographed by people like Ed Rosenthal, Jorge Cervantes, other folks. But one of them, there was an autograph, was written by an attorney called Richard, named Richard J. Mueller. And Richard J. Mueller's book uh, was called Marijuana, Your Legal Rights. So a long-haired young who looked like he was a teenager who searched my house, uh, he introduced my library. And he went on and carried on his you know, two-hour, three-hour testimony and as soon as my lawyer got a chance to cross-examine him, the first thing he focused on was the library. He said, see those books, Marijuana, Your Legal Rights, to turn to page 219 and read the chapter headline. So the cop picks up the book, he turns to the page, and he starts stuttering. And he won't say it. And my lawyer says, read the chapter headline. He won't say anything. The judge tells him, read the chapter headline. In the end, after about a minute, my lawyer said, doesn't it stay? juries can acquit defendants even if they think they're guilty. And it's a chapter about juries. So the the prosecutor jumps up. He goes, objection. Objection, Your Honor. You can't bring that up to the jury. And the, the judge <laughs> ruled in our favor, which he didn't necessarily have to do, but fortunately he did. And he said, no, wow. no, no, no. Introduce this evidence. This is your evidence. You cannot object to your own evidence. And so that stayed in oh, as, the, as the evidence. And it was, the jury was out for three days in my case. And uh, I know now that they did, in fact, look at that while they were in the jury. And in the end, my lawyer argued that I should just be convicted of the lesser included charge of possession. Because at the time I was arrested, I only had two grams of marijuana in my shirt pocket. And so he argued I should just be convicted of that. And uh, the jury was out three days, and what I found out is they were deadlocked, 10 to 2, to find me guilty of the simple possession, which my lawyer had argued they should find me guilty of. And they were deadlocked 10 to 2 to acquit me of the... Uh, uh, manufacturing charge with the 10-year mandatory minimum sentence. Told by uh, the jury secretary, who was an attorney, uh, going to law school at the time, but as attorney since I met him uh, outside of uh, uh, the court and everything. But he uh, told me that there was an older woman and a younger woman who uh, 
wouldn't convict me of even the possession of the marijuana in my pocket. They stood up through that whole thing. Wow. And in the end, uh, they were deadlocked on that. And I let the judge make the determination, and he acquitted me and found me guilty of just the simple possession of the two grams of marijuana. Now, because I had the prior conviction, simple possession of less than an ounce in federal court for a first-time offender is a misdemeanor. But subsequent second and third possession is a felony. And the second possession required 30 days in custody, where if you're if I was convicted now under federal law with two prior convictions, it would be a mandatory minimum six months just for simple possession of uh, marijuana. But uh, so two, two jurors in a nutshell. Two jur- two jurors saved you from 10 years in prison just by just saying not guilty. That simple. You've you've been free and done all these amazing things in these in these last thirteen years that you could have been sitting in federal custody, um, not doing yes, anything. Twenty three years. It's twenty three years. Twenty three. Oh yeah. Okay. Time. I'm I'm 90, a little. Ninety three. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's okay. Okay. Ninety three. I was like thirteen. Okay. Wow. So. Yeah. It was just the <laughs> trial actually started on my daughter's first birthday in December of uh, nineteen ninety three, but then the sentencing was in uh, ninety four. Now, that's amazing how much power how much power they have because if those two jurors weren't there, I mean you could have been in prison like that it literally saved your life during nullification. Yeah, yeah, definitely. My youngest son, wow. uh, who was born in '96, uh, wouldn't be around if it wasn't for that. Would so, you say uh, that did during nullification um, have anything to do with your success that you've had? in activism in in medical medical world over the last couple decades, um, would you well, it credit certainly um, Yeah, it certainly okay. educated me, and I was able to share my experience with a number of different people, and, you know, both at the state and the federal level. I had many people since then tell me that no one helped them as much as I did in terms of navigating their their prosecution for marijuana crimes. Because of my experience, wow. I was able, and you know, I taught a lot of people about jury nullification, not just in that book, which has been reprinted in the Beacon newsletter a half dozen times over the years. But people like uh, another guest on your show, Ed Fortune, I I educated him about that, and uh, I helped him on a couple of occasions here uh, in uh, also expanding, you know, jurors' knowledge there on, right. on the East Coast about. Well, yeah, and then you do it. Most people don't know about it still. And, uh, you know, I do this cable access television show. I've been doing it for 20 years, and I've been educating people through that about marijuana and cannabis and hemp and, of course, jury nullification, too, when the issue arises in the midst of that. So tell our listeners, we only have about a couple more minutes left on the interview, um, and I love your show. In fact, thanks for having me and Mindy on it. Mindy's, uh, Mindy's a producer of this show. Um, and I loved your show because yeah. you your show is a very powerful voice, and that's what we're all about is the voices of the cannabis war. So, like, you are paving the way, and I look up to you. I hope to have a show someday, someday, um, someday too. I mean, I, I just think it's so cool that you have an access to the TV and the people in your community can be educated about all the things that you've went through and the things that you've seen. 
And will you tell our listeners if they want to know more about what you're up to, um, the, the projects you're working on, where they can find find your show, where they can find your website, and those types of things? Well, the show is Cannabis Common Sense. We do a live show about 45 times a year, and we have pre-recorded shows uh, the rest of the year. So we do 52 new shows uh, every year now. And so uh, you can find it uh, at our website, crrh.org. And that's been an Internet domain for about 23 years now, Uh, crrh.org, for the campaign for the restoration and regulation of health. So, uh, cool, cool. Uh, it's on YouTube. Are there you any go to shows? YouTube, you can see hundreds of shows by looking up Cannabis Common Sense. All right, cool. Um, now, the and there's, there's one you guys, yes, yes. In fact, if you guys want to find the show, we did one with, with, with Paul regarding our plant prisoners, regarding nullification, during nullification, regarding our lifers, regarding a lot. Um, my my story, a lot, a lot is on that show. You guys can go look for that episode. I don't remember what episode number it is, but it was a, it was a the show that aired on June or um, March first or April first, I believe. So check check that out. Um, Paul or Eugene, is there any final thoughts you guys want to give um, before we end this interview? Uh, no, I think um, stated very clearly. Uh, many things were, were were stated. I I just like to emphasize. Our system is not working. Our system is corrupt. Uh, The very fact that I don't know one single prisoner for marijuana charges in all the time I've done in prison who's ever had any victims that the court said were affected by by, by the, the actions he was accused of doing. I think that in itself is is quite a statement. I think sure. marijuana is a blessing from God, goddess, whatever, the earth, whatever you might think. It's the oldest crop. All archaeologists agree it's been cultivated at least 12,000 years and maybe over 30,000 years. And so we have evolved with cannabis, and cannabis has co-evolved with us. I mean, just look at dogs. Dogs were wolves 25, 30,000 years ago. Now you have Chihuahuas and Pomeranians. You have Rottweilers and Irish Wolfhounds. They've changed dramatically. <laughs> the same thing has happened with us and with cannabis in our relationship. Cannabis is the oldest crop and the most productive crop. It produces more oil, more food, more fiber, and more medicine than any other plant on this planet. In my opinion, it's a, a sacred plant, and it, uh, uh, it can. the only reason it's illegal is because it, it could be the main source of energy. It was the main illuminant to, lamp, to light our oil lamps for thousands of years, and today it could replace all petroleum. And so low-THC hemp only produces one-twentieth of the seed that high-THC hemp will produce. And hemp seed and hemp seed oil is the whole reason marijuana is illegal. Drugs are just a smoke screen. It's really about energy and power and money and the mm-hmm. further centralization of economic and political control. The late, great Kentucky attorney 
date with Galbraith, who introduced me to Willie Nelson 26 years ago, and I'm pleased to still know him. He uh, said it was the petrochemical, pharmaceutical, military, industrial, transnational, corporate, elite, fascist, sons of a bitches who gave us marijuana prohibition. And it's a battle between the synthetic cycle, the petrochemical, poison, toxic uh, industrial processes, and the natural cycle. And uh, cannabis is a key to our freedom. And uh, uh, when we can restore hemp without regard to its THC content, but with regard to its most productive fuel, fiber, food, and medicine variety, then we will, instead of giving all our money to the world's largest corporations, Exxon, Mobil, the Saudi Sheiks, the Nigerian despots, that money will go to our farmers, and our farmers will spend it in our community. So instead of the further centralization of economic control, we'll see the decentralization of economic control. And so cannabis is at the root of all of this. And uh, during education is another very important key to liberty and uh, justice. And uh, I'm a proud beneficiary of uh, you know, your knowledge, and uh, uh, hopefully your listeners can teach others because education is the key, and that's why I'm blessed to be able to do this cable access television show. That's one of the reasons Portland's been at the forefront of uh, marijuana policies because we can have a way for citizens to be heard outside of the corporate uh, control, which is really in the hands of uh, the national security deep state. I'll get off my soapbox. That's my fault. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Paul, for coming on our show, and thank you for everything you do for our movement. Um, we appreciate everything you had to say today. Thank you. You're very welcome. Have a good day. It's a pleasure to meet you, Kristen. God bless you. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Bye. And Mindy. All right. Bye-bye. Mindy. Bye. All right, that was Paul Stanford. He is an icon out here in the Northwest. Um, he's a wonderful man who fights for a plant and one jury nullification, and that's why he's here free to tell us about it today. Our next guest is on the line, um, the New Jersey weed man. You guys have heard him on our show a few times. Um, he's talked in the past about how jury nullification saved him twice. This time he's here to talk about how it's going to save him again. Um, go to our past shows and find out what happened to him, Um, but we're going to talk to him about his plans in the future and how he plans on using jury nullification um, in New Jersey. Good morning, New Jersey Weed Man. Good morning, Kristen, Mindy. How are you? And Eugene's here, too. We're good. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, A couple of people that I've was doing time with him, just gotten clemency from the president. Wow. You know, I I, I, um, I really appreciate when the president does that, but I wish he would do it a whole lot more. <laughs> Unfortunately, this institute is an institution that prevents that. That's called the Department of Justice, which is not, it's the Department of Injustice, actually, but it prevents, it prevents that from occurring. So, uh, Obama is doing what he can within a very re- restricted uh, range of activities. Uh, you know, can can reach out to 365 some people, 
who have such a, a grave, egregious sentences. Uh, one of the guys that uh, I did time with just got uh, uh, clemency. Uh, he had he was a, it was a pure marijuana case. He's done 22 some years, and it was a sting operation. The DEA was bringing marijuana in and sold it to him. And you know you know the philosophy. The philosophy that uh, they say that the fact is if he actually did something in a sting operation, it, he had the propensity to do criminal acts anyway. Hell, he was induced to do it by the government. <laughs> and that, yeah. that's the truth of the matter. Uh, we all know that. That's what happens in sting operations. And the the fact is, you look at the, the people who get in, and not just marijuana prisoners. There there are other uh, prisoners that have done terribly long sentences, and and uh, we're releasing some of them. But the whole the total of of what Obama is doing is like 365 prisoners out of 225,000 federal prisoners. It should be embarrassing to him. <laughs> He's a good man <laughs> trying to do something. But the system itself is so skewed and so wrong, and that's that's why we we have our program. That's why you do your actions and so on. And um, uh, give us give us some insight into what's happening in your life, though. Well, um, first I want to um, shout out to uh, the last two guests. It was an interesting show, um, and I. I I uh, definitely want a special shout out to uh, Paul Sanford. Um, I'd like to say that uh, I've, uh, I've I could be called jury nullification man. I've been I've been advocating for jury nullification for just as long as I've been publicly advocating for the legalization of marijuana. And um, in 1997, you know, I'm not going to rehash everything right now, um, but in 1997, I was arrested for a for a, a, a shipment of marijuana that came from Arizona to New Jersey, and I decided that I wanted to try jury notification. Well, I learned about jury notification because as a kid, uh, my mother made me do a book report on, on William Penn, and that's how I learned about it. And um, when I was arrested in 97, I started openly advocating that I was going to take it to trial and I was going to advocate to my jury to utilize jury notification. And, you know, that was around the time also that uh, – I got on the internet hard and started trying to promote myself all over the all over the internet and um I did come across uh Paul Sanford where he reached out to me one way or the other. Um and he did he was probably the first one I knew that had actually used it. Um and he did give me a lot of insight into how he used it and I've taken his uh um, advice as it with uh, with my own opinions and has run with it for the last uh, almost twenty years, which brings us up to up to to today. Um, wow! Once again, I got arrested for marijuana on April twenty seventh, just uh, a month Aww. ago. Yep. And I know I was sad when I saw that. Yeah, you know, I have to tell you. I had about six ounces of marijuana, and I openly admit I had it. I don't know. The police 
have told the newspapers and everyone that I had 37 ounces of marijuana. I have no idea if they planted some or if they're way in the bottle. I had no idea. I still have not been presented with the evidence against me. I haven't seen anything. But I do know I did have um, six ounces of marijuana. Um, I have publicly said before that uh, I'm unconvictable in this area for just marijuana. I think that there is, in any room, 12 people. I will always get a couple of them that will say not guilty. Um, I will always get, again, in any room. I don't care if it's a room full of church people or a room full of uh, police officers. Um, I think no matter what, there always will be someone in that room who will believe that marijuana should not be legal or should not be illegal. And that is my entire plan for my trial, to constantly badger the jury um, that the law is wrong and not I. And I have had some, some success over the last 20 years. I've basically had three trials in the last 20 years. And even the first trial, while I did take the plea, the third day of trial, uh, one of my jurors started crying and said she could not convict me. Another juror started crying, and, um, you know, she pretty much kept her mouth shut. And that scared the prosecution into giving me a, a, a sweetheart deal. I went from facing 20 years to j- in jail to a three- to six-month um, uh, program. Um, that first trial. and the second trial, I got a hung jury, and I was guilty. I was absolutely 100% guilty. And the third trial, I got found not guilty. All 12 said not guilty. And this is with me talking to the press and telling everyone that I'm unconvictable. And, of course, when I got arrested just recently on the 27th, I continued that with big public pronouncements that I was unconvictable. I've uh, made a point to call out the prosecution and say, let's, let's go, let's, let's get this going. Um, and I know there's people in prison sitting all across the country right now for marijuana offenses. Um, but this is my home turf. This is where everyone knows me. This is where I sign autographs when I go to the store. This is where I get, well, autographs is actually going out of style. <laughs> it's now selfies. I, I don't have your autographs. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's oh, like yeah, selfie selfies pictures have taken over autographs. <laughs> oh, yeah, selfies have definitely taken over. Um, I, have, <laughs> I, think it took, I think it took four selfies yesterday. Like, it's everywhere I go, well, I, it, people ask me for to take a picture with me. Um, I get pulled over more by people who want to smoke weed me than by police officers. Um, do you think? Do you think I absolutely that the attention oh, you're getting? Do you think the attention you know and like the fact that everybody knows you and you're un unconvictable, you're basically invincible. Do you think that intimidates um, the city as far as them wanting to prosecute you, or do you think they're still going to go after you? I think my arrogance infuriates them, which leads them to fall into my trap. I actually hope they put me on trial. I hope it's as <laughs> possible. I don't want to be dragged through the mud for the next two years. I'd be happy if we if they just decided next week, let's go to trial. I would go. I don't think I need any preparation. All they need to do is tell the jury the law is wrong and not me. Most of them already agree with that. And I actually think that this philosophy, if it was across the country, across the nation, um, 
you know, it would it would end the world of marijuana or prosecutions of, of people for, for marijuana. And I think that the, the public opinion is is there nationwide. I believe that for the last 10, 15 years it's been there. But at this point, I don't care what opinion poll you use, more than 50% of the people believe that marijuana should be legal or for medical use or, or whatever. And, you know, on a jury, you don't even need 50%. You just need one. And I think, you know, it's impossible for the prosecution to get 12, whereas it is way, way more possible for me or anyone else in the country facing a jury trial to get one, because that's all you need, one. And like so I said, what, I, what is that? We've talked and, about hung juries uh, with the last couple guests, and I always get confused. A hung jury is where one person hangs it, right? Just one person? It doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be one, because uh, two trials ago, I got seven to five. I had seven people for acquittal and five for conviction. But you only need one. Okay. And then that's yeah, a hung. That's a hung jury. Um, because okay. for, for a conviction, you need a unanimous decision, whether it's 12 for acquittal or 12 for conviction. It's the, the prosecution needs 12. Um, I, I hear in certain states it's, it's less, like six or seven. Um, I'm not even familiar with exact state, which states they are. And I do know that in civil cases that that is a lot less. But in criminal trials across most of America, you need unanimous decision, you know. So a hung jury to me is a victory. You know, in my in my last trial, my my judge, Judge Delahy, I call him Judge Dementia because he's always forgetting things. He um <laughs> he 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 admonished or tried to admonish me in open court that I was trying to get a hung jury. Um, he says that I was trying to scuttle due process and a couple other things that he he was saying in his little speech from the bench. Um, of course, when it was my turn to speak, I turned that around and said, that's a victory. And, yes, every defendant across the world is trying to get at least a hung jury. And a hung jury is a victory for the defendant. If you prevent a conviction, that is a that is a victory for the defendant, and uh, I am openly angling for a um, a hung jury. I'd be extremely happy to get a a total acquittal. I only need one, and every single interview I do, I say that. Every single interview, um, radio interview, or whatever, this is what I talk about, and. And, and a lot of things that I write, I talk about jury nullification. I, like I said, I, you know, I've been calling myself New Jersey weed man for the last 20 years, but I could have equally have, have called myself the New Jersey jury nullification man or anything like that because I, it's going hand in hand with me. I've always talked about the legalization of marijuana. I've always talked about jury nullification as the means to do it. Um, Anyone who's followed anything about me knows that. And I, I've taught thousands of people. I know I have no idea how many people I've reached, but I constantly get told by people that, you know, they never heard of jury notification until they heard of me. Um, and equally, you know, uh, 
people have, have, have said things like, hey, I looked up this term jury notification and you pop up, you know, and actually if you <laughs> it, um, you know, I, I've kind of become the face of jury notification. There's a few authors around the country. Clay Conrad, for instance, he always comes up. Paul Sanford, your last guest, he always comes up if you do a, um, a Google search. Um, but then there's five or six pages of me. Um, same thing with if you go to you, uh, YouTube or something and just type in jury notification, then the first page or two you'll see a video of me talking about it. And, you know, I'm kind of proud of that, that, that this concept of jury nullification has um, made it. Has I, made it well, one thing that enough. I've noticed is I work with a lot of defendants across the whole nation, and when I talk to them, they're like, well, I got in touch with New Jersey Weed Man. I was like, okay, perfect, perfect, and they want to use the New Jersey Weed Man defense. You actually have a, a defense that people can use um, where if you use, if you mention, I noticed that if you mention jury nullification, or not jury nullification, but your, your, that you use the cannabis and you use it in your opening statement because they don't allow you to have, like, all your evidence through, throughout the court, throughout the court, you know, the court hearings. So if you, you plea your, your side at the beginning of the, of the court case, you have a better chance of winning. Is that still something that you recommend? Yes, I, I think that's the, the, the um, how should I say it? It's, it's definitely very, very, very useful. That's what I, I recommend that, 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 that people, defendants, should give their opening statement. I tell people all the time, you should represent yourself. And I don't mean by yourself, because even if you demand to be represented by your, rep, represent yourself, say, per California versus Ferretta, the, uh, the Supreme Court case that says you can. But it also, that, that case also says that you, you can uh, choose your own defense. You know, Ferretta versus California definitely says you can choose your own defense. So in the course of your defense, you decide it's part of your defense, part of your tactic. You give your own opening statement. You represent yourself. And to to say you represent yourself does not in any way diminish your Sixth Amendment right to assistance of counsel for his defense. That's what the Sixth Amendment says. The Sixth Amendment doesn't say anything about someone has to represent you. It, uh, it gives you the right to defend it for assistance of counsel for his defense. So whether you're representing yourself or not, you still have a right to assistance of counsel for his defense. And while there's people rolling their eyes right now saying that's not true, I've done it three times. You have to argue it. You have to argue that nothing, <laughs> nothing takes away that right. You know, no matter what, what you decide to do as part of your tactics, part of your defense, nothing takes away the right that you have for assistance of counsel. Unless you say you don't want any assistance. And I never say that. I always say I want assistance. But I also say I still want to speak for myself. I still want to represent myself. And speaking for myself, especially as part of the opening statement, because, you know, the defense goes second. The prosecution gets up there and they say, you violated this law and that law and you should be in prison for it and blah, 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 blah. And I've gotten up there and said, true, I violated this law and that law and these laws are wrong. And there's people on the jury right away, right there, when you say that, you'll see a head nod 
you'll see someone look at you like, oh, my God, did he just say that? I mean, you can see it in their face. In the last, in the last two trials I've had, I knew I won at opening statement. Before anyone testified, I knew because I was able to count how many people shook their heads, nodded their heads affirmatively. In my, and even prior to that, um, when I was picking the jurors, I always wear a weed shirt. I always wear something that's openly pro-marijuana. And as I stand, and I representing myself, I pick my own jury. So I'm standing there looking them in the face, and I have a weed shirt on. I can tell who's, who's down with it and who's not, who smirks at me and who doesn't, you know, almost who's Republican and who's Democrat. <laughs> <laughs> Huh. All right. Well, um, New Jersey Weed Man, we've got our next guest coming on. His name is George Monterano, and he spent 33 years of a life sentence, and he went to trial. And we're going to find out about his trial a little bit. Um, Eugene was telling us earlier how he did three different trials, and they lasted all together about a whole year, 25 years ago. And he had mentioned that they took one of the jurors who was pregnant and put the heat on or took, turned the air conditioning off just to hurry up and get a conviction out of them. So, like, they, they're pretty intimidating when it comes to trying to convince the jurors to say to say guilty. Um, and maybe that's what I think I want to talk to you about next, too, is what, what, you, what, what you think about how they approach our jurors and why our jurors aren't told the truth. So maybe that will be, like, another show soon. But um, I just had another quick question before we let you go. Do you does any do you have any co-defendants? I mean, was it, is anybody else facing the possibility of a trial that was um, involved in the raid when they raided you? No. Um, everyone who who was at my uh, location that were arrested either had warrants or small amounts of marijuana on them. Um, and with, with small amounts of marijuana, you go to uh, municipal court where you don't have a jury trial. Um, a few of those. Few of those also are going to get dismissed anyway. Like I had, there were three medical marijuana patients who were there at the time, and I believe all their charges eventually will get thrown out because they had the right to have that marijuana. Um, right. For me, I had I had the uh, the six ounces, and I've been charged with possession with with intent to distribute because of the, because of that, and. In New Jersey, just having over 50 grams of marijuana, that is the charge you get, possession with intent to distribute. That doesn't mean they have any sales on me, which I don't, I don't, you know, in my location, I have not sold any marijuana. I, I have shared, you know, with the people who come in, but as far as actually selling marijuana, I haven't been selling marijuana in years. Um, and I, I absolutely, oh, and so, so I, I will be the only one as far as facing a, a superior court trial with a jury. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for coming on. Eugene, is there any final thoughts you want to say before we let New Jersey Wee Men off online? No, I think he's expressed it well. And uh, I think the next time we have you on, we'd like to hear a little bit more about uh, what how you can influence jurors to understand, even if you can't say directly they have the right to jury nullification, somehow you're able to communicate that message to them, and I'd like that to be distributed to the uh, other listeners 
who might be facing trials. Sure, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Cool, cool. Uh, I, um, I all right, well. Anytime. I'm looking forward to the next uh, call, the next interview with you, if you do. So definitely make that the, that the agenda. Actually, next. thank you. Thanks, New Jersey. We man have a nice day in New Jersey. <laughs> all right, you too. Bye-bye. All right, bye. All right, you guys, that was the New Jersey weed man. Um, yes, he's a very popular person. In fact, he's even played in a movie before. Um, I, I forget the name of the movie, but he's he's very influential out there. And the fact that he preaches during nullification, that is definitely one a million points on our, on our side in order in order to get the word out. Um, we need people like New Jersey weed man to help us. Um, next, we're going to talk to George Monterano, who spent 33 years of his life sentence in prison. We're going to immediately go to him and find out what he thinks about jury nullification and what he thinks about his trial. Good morning, uh, George. How are you hey, today? Hey, good morning, Christine. Good morning, Jean. I mean, good afternoon here. Good afternoon, uh, <laughs> George. Yeah. Uh, how's the horseback riding going? Well, I just pulled up about basically five minutes ago. I kicked off my boots because I don't take them in the house. And uh, so I had to rush back, and it was good. The rain rain didn't, uh, didn't rain yet. We're supposed to get some heavy rain. So I got my five-mile run in, and then from there I went uh, freshened up a bit. I went right to the stables, which is a very uh, character, very characteristic part of town. It's the town of the poor and minorities. And uh, and uh, that's what I like to speak about a little bit. They, we, you see, so you're talking about jury notification. Okay. Hello. Yes. Yeah, we're here. Yeah. Well, there was there was a case that we're well aware of, uh, uh, with uh, a friend of ours in Atlanta. Gene, uh, remember he he was found not guilty on certain counts. The judge. Still sentence them on them. He said, uh, "What do you call that when the, there's the evidence? The evidence was overwhelming." Hello. <laughs> yeah, I thought I was cutting off. And uh, so, the, you know, that's all well and good, but uh, you know, the judges have the power. You know the case, uh, well, the well, Freddie's case. Remember Freddie? Yeah, in the, yeah. In New York, he was, he about, was yeah. actually found not guilty of counts of violence, and the judge says, no, uh, the evidence was o- overwhelming, jury, and he worded it where the jury didn't understand it and sentenced them to two two life sentences. So, uh, George, uh, we're discussing jury nullification, but we're also discussing uh, with Craig and others the tricks that are played in court. And you, your case involved a real trick to get you to plead well, any, guilty, didn't it? Any case, any case, basically, any case, uh, uh, especially these large RICO cases uh, with the poor and minorities, uh, you know, unless you have a top lawyer, uh, one or two top lawyers with these several defendants, uh, you know, you're gonna. It's all, it's all, it's all streamlined, and uh, and I don't know how uh, uh, <clears throat> to prevent the conflict. I actually know when they group up and make the decisions. Uh, I made a statement in 2010, 
at FTC, the pre-trial facility, that place wasn't built when I was pre-trial. And I was asked by the media, what do you think of it? And it was uh, nine floors, thousand pre-trial inmates. And I said, I see the porn Bernard here. So I see, I see large drug cases, RICO cases, where kids are facing 10 to life, 10 to life, and a minimum amount of drugs. And uh, with these sting operations. And uh, and I went on to say, you know, you can have this, there's, there's certain rich communities in New York and California and all, all around America where they have these parties. And at these parties, they actually have a regular bar. And then they have actually in a private room, they have drugs, this and that. And uh, the rich and the famous do their thing. But how come they, the government doesn't send a guy wired in to that and indict all indict fifteen or twenty of the rich? Okay, but uh, what they do is they send them to uh, these sting operations in the poor neighborhoods, and uh, and that's what that's what you have. That's what you have. And uh, when is it going to change? Who knows? When is it going to change? I mean, we heard it time and time again. The right lawyer. You know, them, them very, very, very expensive lawyers, you know, things are much different. It's like, uh, it's like the, you know, the good old boys, you know, if they're, they're one of them. And, uh, and meanwhile, the poor and the minorities, which is the bulk of the, of the prison system, uh, they, you know, they go, they, they go up the river without a paddle. Just in the state of this state of this Pennsylvania, uh, they have several, several state prisons. Fifty-three percent of all the prison population comes out of one section of of Philadelphia, North Philly. Fifty-three percent of all the prisons. Now the prisons could be four hundred miles away, across the state, and they're putting the poor minorities. Just put them away, put them away, put them away. And uh, you know that's a jury notification in them cases. The judge, you could there's probably many many cases. The judge will override it. Says uh, the, uh, the evidence is overwhelming. I still find you guilty, and that's what happened to Freddie. You know that, Gene, right? Yeah, you know uh, uh, one of the things that we announced on the show today that you probably don't know yet is that Ron Farah, who we did time with, just got right. clemency from the president. Right. Good. Uh, he, 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 he doesn't he feel, he doesn't feel well. He was convicted of a in a sting operation. He did not have right. the marijuana was not his. It was the DEA's. Right, right, right. And uh, you know when the government is so involved in your uh, in sting operations, and uh, there was a thing that they do in Tampa. They were doing uh, the feds were doing so much for the black the black community. Uh, you know, they were procuring them where they were to do a holdup and actually give them the weapons. And they would actually take them right to the location of the holdup. And they would uh, do the holdup. Sometimes they never even made the action of actually holding it up. They would just give them the weapons, and then, and then as soon as the weapons were in their hands, they would arrest them because it was all, it was all recorded. And them kids out of Tampa were getting anywhere from 15 to 30 years. There were some articles about it, too. But, uh, you know, the poor, the situation with the poor, I'm not saying they should be doing things illegal, but, uh, you know, our, our, our city governments, state governments, uh, federal government, 
and not paying attention to the four areas. You know, they have to work with them. They have to come up with some kind of plan, and that's what they're not doing. Gene. George, uh, what you said uh, rings so true, but I go, I'm going to go beyond what you're saying and say our system is corrupt and broken. We don't have a justice system. Remember what we used to say, George? It's not justice. It's just us. Right. Well, and, well uh, like Christian, uh, you know, she's, she's such aware of everything. I'm so proud of her that she's got a, a finger to the pulse <laughs> of all this. Me, me and Gene, we, we lived it. But uh, in, all, in all actuality, and me and Gene expressed this for years, this bureaucracy, this unjust bureaucracy and the criminal justice, it's been in place. It's been in place for since the 40s. It's been in place. And and then you, these young guys are, come to prison and they don't understand. The only way to address their sentence in their situation is to actually become educated. Educated and understanding about the bureaucracy, this big, this big beast that's been in place and incidentally uh, ladies and gentlemen you know uh, better men than me have died in prison so you have to understand that whole dark cloud the bureaucracy that's putting people away way before you and it's still in place and it's still an up here battle but before before these prisoners these state and federal prisoners even have a chance they got to educate themselves. They got to understand it intelligently. You can't get up in the, in the morning, throw your uh, legs over the bunk, and hate the world. You can't hate the judge. You can't hate the prosecutor. You can't hate the agent and the foreman and such of the laws, because then you you will your your feet will hit in that uh, cell floor off that bunk for a very very long time, maybe even till you die. So you have to become intelligent. You have to understand that's the only chance that you have. And it's by the tens of thousands out there. Me and Gene did so much over the years to try to make them understand that. We had some success if they come to grips, come to grips and develop their personal intelligence to the legal attack. Gene? Yeah, George. uh, Education also means learning the law studying the law and spending time working in the law library on your case and so on. I emphasize that to anyone who has a person going off to jail. Don't let well, them... I got my wedge in the door again after obscurity with the Holloway case. And I knew, I knew how to, I knew, you know, I knew how to keep attorney, attorney a record on my case. So that's so important. Uh, so it's just a big, it's a big machine. It's this big bureaucracy, this big dark cloud that's been there for a very, very long time. And and sometimes, sometimes you wear them down, like uh, my situation. You know, for over thirty years, I came at them intelligent. For over thirty years, and say they, they just most denied federal prisoner to that thirty uh, something denials. And uh, you know they just as soon as they see see your name, you know the, there's an old sentence. There's an old old sentence. The hardest case to beat is the frame, because they're not going to backpedal once you once they got you in a frame situation. No, you and you're the only way you get that. And then the media media tries to help sometimes, but they they don't help enough. 
media could do a lot, lot more, Gene. Yeah, George, uh, uh, could you also tell the audience uh, you were led to believe you would get a 10-year sentence by pleading, and they gave you a life sentence? Right, right. It was all orchestrated. It was so much, well, I'm fortunate enough to do my movie, which we're working on. You'll see it all there. such a a high-level, such a high-level deceit, and it's, uh, it's just unimaginable. Unimaginable. Like Roy Black, who's a very one of the most prestigious lawyers in America, he said if he, if he would have had me from, if I would have had him from the get go, would have never, never been like this. And just to walk into whole, whole Philadelphia, uh, and uh, and then as the years passed, I actually wore them all down, and now uh, you know the powers. Uh, the legacy of the powers that be, the powers that the legacy that drifted down. They all want to meet me. They all want to speak. They all want to hang out with me. So, again, uh, am I happy that I did all that time? No. I lost so many loved ones, and uh, I affected so many advice that I could have uh, helped along the way. But again, you know, you can't you can't hate. You have uh, to swallow what happened and become a voice like we're doing. Team. Yeah, George, uh, for our audience's sake, I want people to know that you're out there speaking and doing things to help the community and help the young people. Uh, my co-defendant, Randy Lanier, yesterday spoke at a uh, drug rehabilitation center. Uh, the people who were condemned to, di- to die in prison have been released, like us, are doing right. things Try to improve and change the community. Right, right. Well, it does. You don't need a stage. You know, you don't need a podium. What I try to do is everywhere I go, if I speak to two, when I walk in restaurants, I might speak to a table of six or eight. And you don't have to stay for a very long time. You must say something profound and briefly because we must set an example. Uh, I have a situation with a guy in the neighborhood. Uh, I, my doorbell got rang very early in the morning yesterday. His son was just sentenced to three to five, and the kid was the kid was problematic, but he was respectful to his parents. So uh, he asked me if I could uh, send word because the kid's young, send word to the prison that he's being housed. And I said, yeah, I would I would do that because my name's so known in all, all the prisons, basically uh, in this state, etc. So yeah, I'll do that. So again, if he wasn't, if he, uh, by him ringing my doorbell, uh, he needed assistance. He needed assistance in only certain ways that guys like us can deliver, and I, I will help him. <clears throat> Gee. Uh, Georgie, uh, uh, as a last word, uh, we want to tell the audience that we're going to try to. Uh, tape you in the future so you can do your horseback riding without being interrupted. Well, you know, I want everyone to uh, understand that uh, listening to the show that's involved with the show, you know, you got to stay with the horse you rode in. I understand it's I'm getting busier, so that's why I don't want to. I want to be with the show. So I'm not saying we're going to tape all the time. I'll be live as much as I can, but this way you guys are sure to have my voice. So anyone, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're growing. 
So, you know, there's, you just don't walk away from anything. You want to continue in an intelligent manner, the best way you can offer yourself. Well, George, the audience, thank you. We thank you. Especially when we have such a pretty hostess, Christian. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Thank you, George. All right, sweetheart. All right, Jean, I'll be in touch. Okay, I got some news. I'll tell you later, George. All right, all right. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. All right, that was George Monterano, who spent 33 years of his life of a life sentence. I mean, the, the government thought that he shouldn't be free. He thought he shouldn't walk around us. And they put him behind bars and took him away from all of us for 33 years. And that's what he has to say today about prohibition. Um, next, we're going to go to Tom Corby, who is a chapter coordinator for the Human Solution International for the Northern California chapter. Um, Tom Corby leads people to the end of prohibition by gathering them to court support, by advocating for our prisoners, by coming on our radio show to tell us what is going on and try, by trying to get the word out. Um, let's bring him on. We are in overtime. We're nine minutes past overtime. As soon as Tom is done, we're going to go right into closing, and then we're going to play a song for you guys. So just stay tuned. We only have a few minutes left in the show. Um, you'll like the closing. I guarantee it. It will compel you to want to end the war. Um, good morning, Tom. How are you? Oh, top of the day, all. <clears throat> Thanks. Eugene, Christian, Mindy, uh, it was so great mm-hmm. to hear Clint Cecil's doing better. This is the best I've heard yeah. him sound for a long time. Uh, we need to keep those uh, pardon letters coming. They're so important. Uh, in Northern California, when we talk about jury nullification, Alex Lyons is going to pre-trial conference Thursday that's number one Court Street <clears throat> here in Oroville, California. We always ask for local court support at least and a 50-mile radius if you could come. Uh, it's not only to just to support the defendant but to bear witness to the injustices that are going on inside these courtroom. Furthermore, we pick up new cases. Uh, we connect with the right point people. We work uh, defendants' cases. Uh, court support actually brings us together in unity. When I think about it, jury nullification. Did you know most people that I talk to have no clue their right to nullify? And what we what we say is that happened down in Long Beach here a couple years ago. A lady was on it on a jury trial, uh, and she wanted to nullify uh, the case, uh, the punishment way outweigh the crime. Uh, what I remember is what we tell folks is uh, wait till you're picked on that on jury and you're picked before you nullify otherwise it's for not and she felt bad that she didn't wait uh, it's not that you have to lie, even though it seems they are, they're allowed to. It's just that you don't have to uh, divulge everything about how you feel about our sacred plan. Uh, it's not only uh, your right. Uh, it's your obligation. Uh, it's uh, right, actually, a duty <clears throat> to find, find
judgment and conscience. So in direct opposition to direction of the court, that's huge. And another thing we always point out, you cannot be held liable for your decision. Uh, Alex Lyons uh, has waived his rights to waive time at a preliminary hearing uh, back when he got busted in November. Uh, if more people we talk about would not take these PSP deals, uh, even 10% would go on to trial, uh, we would fight in our war today. The, the court simply cannot afford uh, these trials. Uh, they run into the millions of dollars ours long up here uh, in Butte County. Just six pre-trials alone ran into the millions of dollars. We always point out what a waste of time the taxpayers' money, not to mention disrupting lives and family over a plan. It makes no sense at all. It's illogical. Yes. So we talk about Paul Stanford mentioned hung juries. I don't talk much about our case. I, I wish I had time. I'm not a man of gravity. I could talk a couple hours on our case. Also, not only we resolved the case here in Butte County after three years and without the support of the people and court support, uh, I, I think that uh, we uh, would not have made such uh, a result or case the way we did. Uh, Don and I both been up for 14 years. Uh, back in 1976, uh, uh, I haven't mentioned this before, they actually had a home jury. 1976 in Elko County, Nevada. That's the biggest county in Nevada. We had a little town uh, that was set up uh, by a rat, got out of jail free to set me up. Narcs finally talked me out of one joint. I was up for 20 years. Uh, we went two months. Uh, we went up trial, finally, at the end of my trial, my, my attorney, Greg Corn says, you're pretty well screwed. I can see the jury. I said, it doesn't matter if I take the stand now, will it? He said, go ahead. I talked to the jury for 40 minutes and told them how the one narc lied on the stand and I actually had court support. I had eight witnesses take the stand for me, saying that they've asked Tom Corey to give them marijuana, which is actually cannabis, and quit using that word. And we hung the jury in County, Nevada, which is historical. Uh, now, wow. I talk about it. I uh, coughed a plea to a double possession charge because they came twice uh, instead of furnishing for 20 years. And I got a simple, uh, I got probation. After 15 years, I went up in front of the governor in California, uh, Nevada, excuse me, and I got a, I got a governor's pardon, which was huge in my case. So, uh, just saying that, the both times that uh, I went to jail for this plan, I won my case. We always come, truth and justice prevails, uh, in hopes that the judges uh, are not. So biased that we see uh, against our plan. Please, Gordon, let me point out here. Uh, in, just here recently, you might have saw it posted on Facebook in Colega, California. <clears throat> they're turning a prison into uh, RSOs, exempt oils. Now, 
always talk about educating, not incarcerating. Isn't that such a better choice for our medicines to build prisons? Not building prison, uh, but to have more of our cannabis medicine. So she wanted me to point that out. I thought that was, uh, uh, yeah. yeah, and listen, so uh, Paul Stanley, you're right. They are victories. Uh, when you uh, hang a jury, it's definitely a victory. Uh, also, Grand uh, School comes to mind uh, uh, that uh, last I heard that he's appealing uh, his verdict 10 years, which is ridiculous. Uh, that judge, Layton, jeez, uh, what the hell? Uh, so we always know that when we go to trial, we can appeal, but you have to remember that the ADA can also appeal. And a lot of times now, uh, we find it's such a shame that the juries are being tainted, like the Stenhouse case of a dang accountant a couple of years ago, 70% of them are law enforcement. Uh, this is, uh, first of all, unconstitutional, uh, sad for a country. I want to thank everybody today and come join us uh, at uh, freedomgirl.org. Uh, write a prisoner today. There's a list of prisoners. If you're going to write a pardon letter, always send to the prisoner too and send them a little note, let them know they're not forgotten. Uh, also, uh, the Human Solution International.org and POW.com. Uh, these are our prisoner outreach programs. Uh, they're so important. Mail calls the most important time of all. It's all they really have in there. So, write a prisoner today. I want to thank you all. Uh, and as I always said, don't forget to breathe. Thank you, Chris. Right, thank you, Tom. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Uh, that was Tom Corby with his Northern California chapter update. Um, that is your what's going on up there. Um, Northern California is concerned about jury nullification, and they want you to be able to say not guilty in any case that comes up in their way. They are not playing that. They want. They are out for not guilty every single case. So um, they're on it. They're on the jury nullification. But remember, the jury nullification just doesn't have to happen with the plant. Jury nullification can happen with any law that is bad, any victimless crime. There's a lot of homeless crimes out there that if you, there's one in California that if you sleep in your car for longer than four hours, you can be considered homeless and taken to jail. So in cases like that, you know, you always just judge the law. And if you think it's a bad law, you have the right to vote not guilty and you cannot be punished for it. That is the main focus on today's show is just vote not guilty. Use your heart. If you feel like the government is, luring you into something you shouldn't do, just say not guilty. It'll force a retrial. It'll force more fairness out of the next trial, more fairness out of the next trial. And if the whole off, oh, you can convince all the jurors to say not guilty, there wouldn't be, not even be a next trial. So just, just vote with your heart, not with what they want you to do. Um, so we're going to go into closing now. Um, it's been a long show. Thank you, everyone, for listening. There's a lot of good information. Um, but first, we've got to thank our sponsor, CCHI. 2016 for giving us this platform to have this voice. Um, Eugene, do you have any last words before I go into the closing? Uh, the only thing I'd like to say, Christian, to our listeners is 
the system is wrong and it's screwed up. And that's why we're talking about jury nullification. The public, we, the people of this country, have to take our government back. Right. We got to stand behind it because, you know, not all of us go to trial. It's a huge risk. If you go to trial and you lose, which you do pretty much every time, you rarely win, especially in federal court. Um, you get you get a lot longer of a sentence. So we have to stand behind those people that are daring enough and believe that this is wrong. We have to stand behind them and educate and stand up and tell the community to vote not guilty. And we just have to try to end the war in that way. If we had if everybody didn't take deals instead of 98% deals, if 98% of our federal government system said, oh, I'm taking this to trial, they'd lose. Bam, war would be over, end of discussion. So just think about that. It's those ones that are, that are putting their foot out there and saying, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight this. I'm going to go to trial. That's actually trying to pave the way. And if more people did it and more people did it, yeah, you're risking a lot. But eventually that's what would break down the system. So please just vote not guilty if you're ever called to jury duty. Um, we've got to say, you know, because of the war, you know, there's a lot of people that's died in this movement. And we're going to say some rest in pieces to them. Like my father, Richard Floor who couldn't even make it to trial. He had dementia. My dad was facing 144 years, and he was destined to go to trial and fight his case. He knew that there wasn't a a jury in Montana that was going to convict my father, a very sick old man of 144 years in prison. Um, So he was willing to risk it. However, he got dementia right in the middle of the fight, and the government said that he would not be able to recall certain events. They forced him to take a plea deal, which is one of my biggest arguments about my dad's case is how in the hell – can he not go to trial, but he can take a plea that they can allow him to take a plea deal? If he's not in his right mind for trial, how could he be in his right mind to accept a deal like that? But it's what happened. It is what it is, and he went to prison, and it wouldn't have mattered if he got found guilty or not because four months of incarceration killed him. He served a de facto life sentence, meaning that your lifespan was lot, was shorter than your prison sentence. That means you're, you, you spent the rest of your life in prison. And even though my dad's only four months of his life left, it was very miserable and tormenting him to him because they did not take care of him. They, um, they did not give him his medicine. They let him break bones. He had mental illness, osteoporosis, dementia, heart problems. He had two major heart attacks uh, when they were transporting him. I had to take him off life support while he still shackled to a bed. My dad never hurt anybody in this world. He followed the state laws. And then I had to tell my mom, who was in prison, also about it. And that's just not acceptable in 2016. Next, we got to say rest in peace to Gary Shepard. Okay, Gary Shepard never even made it to trial. He never even made it to prison because they raided him. He stood on his doorstep and said, you're not going to take down my plant. Guess what? They shot him over 20 times over a plant. They shot Mary Jane Jones, who stood behind him and held their baby son Jake down as well that day. Gary died. Mary Jane survived. Baby Jake was not shot. Mary Jane survived to let live another over 20 years and just recently passed away from cancer. Rest in peace to those two heroes who who definitely stood up for our rights. Also, rest in peace to Jack Hare, who wrote us a book called The Emperor Wears No Clothes. Um, We talked to Paul Stanford about all the things that, that cannabis can Replace, well, read the book, Emperor Wears No Clothes. It'll tell you not only about the same thing that Paul told us, it will also tell us about 
conspiracy against him, the things that plant can do for us, everything we need to know about the war, you can read in that book. Rest in peace, Jack Kerr died of cancer. Also, rest in peace to Peter McWilliams, who was a civil rights leader. He fought for gay rights. He also fought for cannabis rights. He was a civil rights leader, a libertarian who was on probation, used our medicine for cannabis. He was on probation for cannabis, used our medicine to treat his illnesses, his, um, his nausea. And rumor has it that he died on probation choking over his own vomit because he couldn't have the medicine for his nausea anymore. It's federally illegal. Also, rest in peace to uh, – oh, also get Peter McWilliams' books. They will help you in, in your bad times. They help, he wrote a book that helped me through my dad's death, and that's what we have to remember Peter by. Also, rest in peace to Bill Lamorte, who is a silent, very silent hero. You can't go read Bill Lamorte's books because Bill Lamorte was in prison. They shut his mouth down, didn't give him a voice for over 20 years. They served him with a life sentence of cannabis, and after that, we never heard of him again, except for Eugene did because Eugene was in prison with him. On the 4th of July, his friend Bill um, grabbed his heart in the middle of the prison yard and died. He fell to the ground and died of a major heart attack on the 4th of July after serving about his 20th year in prison. It tells you something. 4th of July, he, he took, his, took his life that day. Um, prison took his life that day. So definitely rest in peace to him. And to Larry Harvey, who was facing up to 60 years in prison, and his whole family were, and they went to trial. And the government has this thing with medical cannabis now where they kind of trick you into saying guilty by making them judge how many you had. And that's kind of a, a way to get a guilty conviction out of a medical cannabis trial. That's what happened to the rest of his family members after Larry died of cancer. Um, rest in peace, Larry. Rest in peace, D. Young, who gave us Adam. Also rest in peace to Curtis Cecil, whose father called in earlier today from prison after serving his life sentence. Curtis was a young boy who died in the war, and he didn't have his dad by his side. Um, rest in peace, Curtis, and all your family sacrifices. And also to Spencer and Cashy Hyde. Spencer Coptis and Cashy Hyde. Spencer and Cashy were two little children whose caregivers were using the plant to treat their tumors. Well, when they were raided, the parents couldn't get the plant medicine anymore, and the, the tumors in these two children grew out of control and killed them. Rest in peace. Also, rest in peace to Bernardo Puno Martinez, who was a close friend of mine who was helping end the war on a worldly level. And also to Alay Salmons, an ONAC tribal uh, member who, you know, she was, she was also a victim of prohibition when the, when the post office took the package of cannabis that was treating her cancer and so many other ailments that she was, she was living, living through. Well, when they took the medicine, her stuff, her, her things that she was living with grew out of control and she passed away. And also rest in peace to Oscar, Eugene and Georgie's friend. Um, who they were in prison with. They say he went to FCI in the sky. And we're going to play a song. It's called No More War. Kushite Sikska um, sings it. I usually play two or three songs, but we don't have time, so we're just going to play this one today. Thank you for listening to the Voices of the Cannabis War, and stay tuned for next week's show. Thank you. Man, it ain't a sport, got these evil politicians contorting the truth. And he's 
ass witches important to you to tell you the truth man can't hack this. I'm losing my patience like a damn malpractice. 2012 and they still manifesting destiny with military industry complex style weaponry. Depriving heads of righteous men while sipping on the Hennessy. CIA means coke in America, apparently. It's been a narco plutocracy since the 70s. Corporations profiteering, domineering everything. Radio press, news in the media. You better learn to discern from the bullshit that they're feeding you like GMOs. From Monsanto, ringing alarms at family farms so man can't grow. Oh, <laughs> 